hello. How are we doing on a holiday Monday? Sportsnet today, Brent Gunning here with you. You know the voice well. I was entertaining the masses yesterday, working hard on a holiday weekend. I mean, I wasn't working that hard. I was talking about the NFL and the Leafs while I watched the NFL and thought about the Leafs. So uh, not not too hard. Don't want to don't want to make it seem like I'm slaving away on the holiday here. And joining me today, very very happy to have alongside me, Justin Cuthbert. You hear him on the station all the time. We're gonna we're gonna expand things a little more and hear lots of you today. How you doing, bud? I'm good, man. Uh, as a giant radio nerd, mm. unabashed radio nerd, it is a thrill to be in this studio and to join you. And uh, looking forward to talking hockey, football. Having some guests on, it's gonna be a lot of fun. It is gonna be a lot of fun. I'll, I'll tip this to you since you're since you're such a radio nerd. I don't know if you caught it, but on the the door of our studio, I'm gonna botch the wording of it, but there is a sign that says something in along the lines of "Through these doors walks the greatest on air talent in the world." And I'm like, wow, that's like it's a high bar. How about how about good on air talent or or strong on air talent, but the best in the world. So I, I hope you, maybe I shouldn't have told you that, just told you you were that when the show was done. Maybe I'm putting too much pressure on you now. I mean, I did miss the sign, but I was, you know, chatting with the morning show, which is the best morning show mm. in the world. So I, I feel like I got that experience on my way in, definitely. Look at that. And uh, yes, loving, loving things on the new uh, morning show there, of course, of course. Uh, we're As you mentioned, we're going to talk a ton, a ton, a ton of Leafs today, dive into the NFL. Now, it's funny, we're doing our little pre-show meeting. This It's always weird in this business. I'm sure you've had this this interaction with plenty of people where we know each other a bit. We've talked about the Leafs a ton. We've messaged about the Leafs. We, I've had you on my shows. I've interviewed you. And now it's like we're going to meet and have these conversations. And so I'm, I'm sitting there. I'm trying to figure out, are you an NFL fan? What do you do? And I, I won't out which team it is, but you told me there there is an NFL fandom like lurking in the past for you. It's not your fantasy and it's not your gambling, but there there once was a team that you cared about in the NFL. Yeah, there was. Uh, I was a Minnesota Viking uh, fan from a young age, but it really died with gambling and fantasy. Like it, it's, if you have held on to your, many things, if you've, if you've held on to your NFL fandom, it means that you've actually supported a good team because it this dies. If you witness miss field goal after miss field goal in big spots. And we saw a lot of miss field goals yesterday, but the Minnesota Vikings, they perfected the miss field goal in a big spot. So uh, yeah, it died a little bit, and 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 it's it's dying more and more because there's just the gamification of football has just taken over, and for me, it's hard to put on a Viking game when you've got, you know, you need Mason Crosby to hit one of four <laughs> field goals to make sure your Thanksgiving isn't ruined. And it was. Uh, oh, I guess he got the one there. So, so, you're, the so one. you're so you're happy about that. Uh, it's it's funny you say that. The only way you can hold on to the fandom of your football team is if it's a good team. And I I told you you're like so. Are you a fan of a team? And I said I found out last year I am a Patriots fan. I didn't know. I'm a 32 year old man who loves the Patriots. And Tom Brady's been dominant in the NFL since I was about 10 or 11 years old. So that was the team I always was rooting for. That was the team I was always pulled to. And then Brady wasn't there last year. And I'm like, this is really weird. I still want Tom to do well. I literally have a framed picture of the guy in my man cave in my basement. I'm like, I'm really pulling for him. But now Mac Jones is back. The Patriots are back. And I realize I am, in fact, a Patriots fan. So I took a, I'd say, I'd say I took a, a sabbatical, if you will. I just like I needed a break. Brady it was a tough breakup for me there. And then I, I took the sabbatical and now I'm back. So I, I 
fantasy gambling, of course. Of course, always rule the day in the NFL. But yes, there's some fandom lurking there for me. Well, you learned something about yourself, and I think that's pretty cool. You went through some adversity as a fan <laughs> of the New England Patriots, which uh, to this point in your 20-plus years of being a fan of that team, you hadn't had to do that. First so time. You went through something, you learned something about yourself, and now your fandom is stronger than ever, and maybe Mac Jones is the next Tom Brady, and you have another... 20 years of being just completely spoiled or or just win one like i have to re i have to reevaluate and reassess that it's like there can't be a world where mac jones has won a super bowl with the patriots and i'm like yeah but i mean he didn't he didn't even three-peat uh, he he didn't even have back-to-back mini dynasties so what are we even really talking about here uh it is it's going to be a big time recalibration uh for for my football uh fandom again brent gunning justin cuthbert here with you we're here with you till noon today across the Sportsnet radio network uh nuts day in the NFL yesterday you you were talking about how it was great for you I mean if the you know because you're gonna have to you know bog down and be serious about your job at at some point as hockey season starts up here but if that was your kind of last not that you're not going to get to watch football but if that was your last hurrah to just rot and let the football wash over you I I don't know that you could have possibly had a better day yeah and to pair that with Thanksgiving dinner is definitely uh the good way to go out I was talking earlier about how it was we were privileged as hockey writers, hockey fans <laughs> to have that sort of guilt-free football watching experience. I mean, I've been caught on Sundays, I'm, you know, 6, 7 hours deep into watching <laughs> football and realizing, "Hey, this is the uh the one of the few Sundays where the Maple Leafs, you know, play a back-to-back and they're in Arizona randomly on Sunday night and you have to pivot from all-day football watching to, oh, I have to uh write something about the Leafs tonight." That's a bit of a different, you know, that's talking about recalibration. That is a recalibration <laughs> just on that Sunday afternoon. Uh, But yeah, last year was kind of great, just enjoying football. And then, you know, we don't want this to repeat itself. Clearly, we want a full regular season in the (laughs) NHL. We want a full Leaf season. But starting in January... It wasn't actually that bad. Wasn't that bad. Okay. Okay. Now I have a, I have an idea that I'm going to pitch to you today that I cannot have the NHL starting in January. I actually need it to start just a little bit earlier. So that that's a tease. We'll, we'll get to that later on. Now, again, in prepping for the show, we're talking about, do you have a team? Do you like a team? And we were wondering what it would be like in this market if you have an NFL team actually here. And this is not, I want to be so clear about this. I may be a Patriots fan. But I would never, ever, ever want this city to steal the Buffalo Bills. That would be blasphemy. The Bills deserve to be in upstate New York and, and everything that's going on there. But if the, the NFL got its, its, its 33rd team, an expansion team, and it's the Toronto, I don't know, I guess it couldn't be the Titans because there's already one of those, the Toronto Raccoons or whatever you got, what do you think would happen? Like, I think there are a lot of people who have a team that they are like loosely a fan of and they would come over. But if you're a, a diehard, you're a Seahawks fan, you're a Bears fan, you're a Packers fan. I don't think you're, you're switching allegiances for that. I don't know. I, I feel like I look at this a little bit different than you because, I mean, you're a fandom proven over the, over the last year. Mine dying as we speak. <laughs> I feel like, you know, and I, as I mentioned with fantasy and gaming, it sort of takes away from, okay, I got to be here at 1 p.m. I got to be here at 4 p.m. because this is my team. I think if a team that all of us would share in Mm. came into the market, I think it would change a a lot about how people view their fandom because I think a lot of people are like me where it's like, I'm more interested in the spectacle of Sunday than living and dying with one team. And it is easier for certain teams. You mentioned the Packers. I mean, I think a lot of Packers fandom would live on because it's ingrained for so long. Literally owners. And because, (laughs) yeah, literally owners. And because, you know, they are good every year. 
but I think it would be a great test. We mentioned the Bills in Toronto. Like, the Bills in Toronto never worked, and we knew why it didn't work. It was fake. It wasn't real. It wasn't the team that this city really, truly owned. But if there was a team that Toronto really, truly owned, I feel like it would change something, but it also would change the NFL at large. And all of a sudden, you know, the symmetry that we're going to get in the NHL this season, finally, like, it's going to be an even playing field for everyone. That's what the NFL has done so great for so long. Like, it is just a perfect system. And if you throw a Toronto team, it's throwing a wrench into what was a perfect formula. Yeah, that, that's why I just don't think it's, it's going to happen at least anytime soon. Having said that, always the caveat of like, you know, you, you splash around millions of dollars. You can make some change. You throw billions into the mix. And, and that's what I think, not necessarily that'd be the expansion fee by any means, but that's the type of money you'd be injecting into the league with a new team and in a new country and new rights deals and all that stuff. Never, ever say never. But I, I'm, I, I don't see it happening uh, all, all that soon. All right, switching gears, NHL. The tease that I just told you I was going to give you. Why I need the NHL to start in... I need the NHL regular season started by the time Canadian Thanksgiving hits because I'm so, I am so I do this every year. So if you've heard this rant, I'm sorry, but it's going to come back until I actually have enough power to garner change in this game. Every year on American Thanksgiving, I'm so jealous. I think of all the families crowded around and they've got a wonderful Cowboys game on. For some reason, the Lions are playing as well. That, that's a thing that we're still doing in the year 2021. And all I can think of is now that we have the Seattle Kraken, why do we not have a quadruple header on Canadian Thanksgiving? The Leafs play the Habs, the Sens. This, okay, this, this one's not that sexy. The Sens play the Jets. You get your Battle of Alberta, and then you get Seattle and Vancouver. And we just have hockey from noon until midnight, basically, because we have our 9.30 start out in Seattle. What say you about my quadruple header on Canadian Thanksgiving? I mean, it makes all the sense in the world, obviously, to try to use a holiday to actually promote your game. But that's something the NHL has been allergic to for <laughs> as far as I can remember. I mean, they do lean into New Year's Day in the Winter Classic, but there's generally like big college football games mm -hmm. that day that sort of overshadow a lot of that. It's a big deal, I guess, for, our, for us north of the border. But they, they haven't found a way to key in on those holidays. They actually, I guess, enjoy their holidays and want to spend it with family because... <laughs> Clearly, the NHL doesn't lean into that, but it sounds like a great idea. And we're talking about symmetry. And the Seattle Kraken, while it's not perfect symmetry, it does offer something in terms of how you can build rival rivalries on a big day of hockey north of the border, whether it's Hockey Day in Canada or something like that. I think you have a solution there. But, I, I mean, I was thrown off this year. We're starting on a Tuesday. We're not starting with the Toronto Maple Leafs. I was like thrown for a loop over the weekend when I realized that the NHL season is starting on Tuesday night with no Canadian teams involved. That is a different, that's a different wrinkle into the normal plan. So that, that reeks to me of, Hey, Hey, I don't know who has the games down there on that given night, but ESPN TNT, here's your, here's your, your, your cookie here for you're You're going to join us as rights partners. We will give you your sexy opening night that you can market. Cause as much as we're excited for, for Leafs Habs, or if you, if you wanted to start off with a real bang and Matthews is in the lineup and it's Matthews and McDavid, even that matchup, I don't know that it quite is, is as easy to sell now. I think, if ESPN and Turner do the job they hope they're going to do, selling Austin Matthews, the American star who could potentially captain the American Olympic team, 
against Connor McDavid, the guy who's going to be the exact same figure for Canada. I think they'll get to a point where they can sell that, but on opening night, I guess you just have to go because I think, I forget who the Bolts are playing. I Peng- think it's Peng- Penguins. Okay, Sidney Crosby. That's pretty easy. And then you have your two expansion teams in Seattle and, and Vegas in the, in the late game there. So I, I definitely, see, I'm the, I'm the guy who like when the Leafs don't play on Saturday night, my back gets up. I'm like, this is my birthright to have the Leafs play on Saturday night. And I thought the exact same thing about the first night of the season, but it just, it reeked to me of you have new American TV partners. And, and as much as I don't want to sit here and say that's the be-all and end-all, uh, the team, specifically in this market, they need that cap to go up, and those partners are really important. But So I didn't like it, but I, I definitely understood why they started that way. Well, it's encouraging, right? I mean, we talked about you know the NHL not leaning into those important days. Now you have someone influencing you you know, both north and south of the border. And I think with ESPN and TNT, like it's a, it's a major, major deal. I hope it's as big of a deal as I think it's going to be. But there's the thing of the rising tide raising all boats. And if you have competition in the U.S. broadcasting market, hopefully they raise each other's game and in turn raise the NHL as a whole. And that's one of the big things that was a problem with NBC is it was stale and they had no reason to really compete to raise their product because they weren't competing with anyone for advertising dollars. It is what It was what it was. And now we have two major markets who are going head to head. And they've already, you know, moved the opening day. They've got two really strong matchups. I believe it's on ESPN, an expansion team going out after the last expansion team. It should be a fun night to open on ESPN again, I believe, uh, even if it threw us out of our normal cadence here. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and that that's Justin Cuthbert, Brent Gutting here with you on Sportsnet today. We'll be here with you until noon. It is. It just kind of proves the changing of the guard. And look, of course, you win back-to-back Stanley Cups. You're going you're gonna to throw yourself into that mix. But if this is... And, Uh, Not to go down this wormhole, but obviously there's other things at play with the franchise I'm about to mention, but even two years ago, that's Chicago Blackhawks 1000% on opening night. It's Patrick Kane, it's Jonathan Taves, and it's just, it's a completely different world we're living in. And yeah, part of that is the back-to-back cup champs by the Lightning, but I think the the other part of that is the other reason why ESPN kind of, and the league would steer steer clear from making them the spectacle on, on the first night of the season. Because when I, still to this day, when I close my eyes and I think of American hockey in the NHL right now, I think of two guys. I think of Austin Matthews and I think of Patrick Kane, and it's just, it is very telling that the league kind of stayed away from that on its opening night and it was old it was old reliable right for espn for many years you knew who you were going to get chicago was that number one you'd see st louis there you'd see philly and boston those were the quote-unquote rivalries on rivalry night but now it's what's most important and i don't best laid plans i don't believe Sidney Crosby's going to be available for the opener but you've got the defending stanley cup champions they're going to raise a banner maybe two banners because i believe point, they yeah. tried to push it back because they wanted to do it in front of fans although they got fans at some point last year so maybe that wasn't an issue but a banner will be going up nonetheless. You've got one of the more intriguing and, and interesting teams in the Pittsburgh Penguins who are meeting a crossroads of sorts. And of course, we know exactly what's going to happen uh, You know, with the intrigue with Seattle. It's a booming sports market. They're not going to be playing at home, which I think it was a mistake. I know the arena wasn't ready, but if Jeff, Jeff Bezos can go to the moon, I think <laughs> you can point. speed up the process <laughs> on getting a rink done. I wish it was happening in Seattle, but if you're going to choose another spot, Vegas with Seattle visiting is pretty, pretty good on opening night. Yeah, and again, especially for you, it's 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 a little silly to overstate it this way, 
But especially if you're effectively relaunching hockey in America, I can't think of a better place to do it than Las Vegas, honestly. Like, if you want to sell people, you sell people on Vegas. You get the eyeballs on Vegas, and the people who already want to watch Sidney Crosby and want to watch Ovechkin and want to watch the young stars in the league now, they're going to come, and the people who are already excited about the hockey stuff, they're not going to go, oh, I don't want to watch Vegas. Like, it just, it makes, I agree with you. Come on, Bezos, figure it out. Get the <laughs> get the money in there. But it's, or I guess Bruckheimer. Uh, but but I, I'm with you there. If if it could if it couldn't be in Seattle, I, I think Vegas is an excellent excellent place. All right, Toronto Maple Leafs, local team. They're going to play. Not opening night. The night after that, Ilya Mikheyev, seemingly not in the opening lineup. I I was scouring yesterday for updates. It looked bad. Then we're sitting here and doing the machinations of, well, Adam Brooks went on waivers. What does that mean about LTIR? I never know what it means about LTIR. What are your expectations for, not for McKayev this season, but in terms of the injury? Like, do you have any indication of where where that's at, the timeline, or, or are you just playing the guessing game like the rest of us? Yeah, I think we're playing some sort of guessing game, but it's important to note that Sheldon Keefe said after the preseason win on Saturday night that it's going to be a bit of a longer-term thing, and I think that does, you know, prevent a few things from happening. A few decisions that had to be made are not going to be made. Now, obviously, we saw Adam Brooks go on waivers, and that's one of those decisions, but now I think it's more about getting up or close as you can to the cap before you put Mikheyev on LTIR, and obviously, we're not going to break down all of that but I think it prevents them from having to have some difficult discussions because there was a logjam building on that left side as much as it was completely scorched with Zach Hyman leaving and there's a completely wide open depth chart heading into the offseason. They actually have quite a few pieces there that have to settle themselves. And Ely Mikheyev was the one guy who was probably playing a little bit out of what we maybe projected him yeah. in terms of positioning being in the top six. And we have sort of some theories of why that might be. But now... Either Kerfoot or Bunting was going to end up on the fourth line if McKay started in the top six. And now I think you can sort of rank those guys in what might be proper slotting because as much as Ely McKay fancies himself as a top six forward, you know, he's probably best suited for a bottom six role in terms of the left side. And, and I think that we're not that you want Ely McKay to not be around for opening night, but uh, I, I feel like it might slot everyone at least who's remaining appropriately. Yeah, think about the best version we've seen of Ilya Mikheyev as a Leaf. For me, it's when he was part of the the hemline with with Hyman and and Engvall. The, the it was fleeting, it was it was brief, but that was the best version of hockey we saw out of him. And I think it was because not that he would think of it this way, but because it was. Don't worry about the offense. The offense doesn't matter. Just go out there and play to a zero zero tie, and that's great job by you. That's all we could ever ask of, of this line. And I think the problem is, is that the player just doesn't really view himself that way. This is a guy who thinks he has offensive upside. And it's just so, it is so jarring to, to see that from a player who has, and again, we know a lot of this goes back to the wrist injury. And, you know, if you really want to drill down and look at the five on five, you know, shooting numbers before that, yes, the finishing ability was better and maybe the wrist injury hampered it, but the, the wrist injury happened. That's the player he is now. Now, not to say he can't evolve and can't grow, but it's just, it, it seems to me like a player who is so comfortable thinking of himself in that offensive mindset. And it's it's been proven time and time again, not with this team, not in this market, but in every team in this league, that if you want to become that guy, the road to that, unless you're a Mitch Marner or an Austin Matthews, is by being an effective kind of worker B type in the third line. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess he knows what pays. Maybe the <laughs> soup, the soup endorsement deal. He got a little taste of that that uh, that marketing money, and and he realizes that putting pucks in the net is how he's going to make the most money in his professional career. I wonder if the Olympics played into you know mm. the sort of not even perceived unhappiness, yeah. the unhappiness of Ilya Mikheyev, because I, I think there's an opportunity for him potentially to be on that team, maybe probably in a depth role. However, you mentioned the hemline. I mean, I think they're in a position now where they can put like a far improved hemline on the ice with camp and Kasha. I mean that, that partnership though, it wasn't, you know, it didn't stay together for the last preseason game. That's when been one of the sort of staples yeah. of training camp so far. And I feel like that could be that checking line with that little offensive upside. Cause Mikheyev, as much as he can't put the puck in the net, I mean, he can create chances with the best of them. And Kosh is a guy who can put the puck in the net and camp can be that defensively responsible guy. If I'm putting together a lineup and, you know, that optimized final lineup with everyone healthy, obviously, which is not the case right now. I feel like that is the best checking line you can put on the ice. And we've been, we've learned that Sheldon Keith wants to have that in his lineup. That line he can go to to shut down the opposition. I think it could be a lot better this year, despite obviously losing a little bit of talent in Zach Hyman this offseason and maybe being, you know, probably objectively being a worse team, at least on paper. Yeah, and not and and the thing about that with with using Mikheyev in that role with with Cam Finkasha is and again this is the this is kind of the thing that you know I don't learn a ton during preseason, especially with a team like this where you're missing your first line center and the new look power play doesn't have the trigger man on it. So what am I really supposed to learn here? The one thing I will say I learned is that. Uh, not not so much Kasha. I think I think we definitely knew he had the offensive upside. But even a guy like Camp, not that he has per se offensive upside, but he's just a much smarter and headier player with the puck than I would have expected based on his kind of scouting report. And I think so much of that is because when I've seen shutdown li- shutdown center in this market, it's been a Freddie Goche who it's look he's going to fall on the puck in the faceoff circle, and then they're going to get another faceoff circle, and or they're going to get another faceoff, and that's how he shuts things down. And then you see a guy like like camp and it's not to and again not that I'm putting any offensive ceiling on this player but putting Mikheyev out there with those two guys it allows you to not focus on offense with that line by any means but if you find yourself in that end of the ice it is not to say that the you know the chances are just going to dry up and die all three of those guys Mikheyev included can maybe not finish but definitely help kind of be more creative than you would think your quote-unquote checking line can be in the offensive zone. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, I think I think 95 yards, Ilya Mikheyev, it all comes really naturally to him. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think, uh, 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 you know, that five yards is what's obviously the issue and this thing that we always talk about and the thing that always has held him back. But I think a lot of what Sheldon Keefe wants to do in particular comes naturally to him. And he's learned, like, exactly what Sheldon Keefe wants of him in the defensive zone and in the neutral zone. I think he's, you know, we talked about the high cycle. Right when Sheldon Keefe came on, we what's this high cycle? Like what, what's going on here? This is completely different than, you know, the beating the puck up yep. in the in deep in the offensive zone that Mike Babcock wanted to do. But that's something that Ilya Mikheyev almost became, you know, he was providing the example. He was setting the example of exactly that. He can do everything that Sheldon keeps wants of him. And I think camp is as reliable as it's going to get. I mean, we mentioned Chicago and being on NBC. Clearly we weren't watching enough NBC <laughs> because we should have seen camp and known exactly what he was going to be when he came to the Leafs. But you're right. I think that line can do its job. And maybe with Kasha, it's got that 5%. And then one other guy we mentioned there, and I think he's maybe the most interesting guy, not in terms of having the most interesting impact on this team, but uh, you, I, I am higher on this player than most people are, but you, you could tell me Alex Kerfoot is going to slot 
pretty much just about anywhere other than 1C and 2C or 3C in this lineup, and I'll believe it. You want to tell me he's going to be the fourth-line center with Jason Spezza taking draws? Sure, I'll believe that. You want to tell me he with this Mikheyev injury, he might get a crack with Tavares and Nylander? I can believe that as well. Like, where, where do you see him fitting in with this Mikheyev injury now? Well, you mentioned it won't be 3C. It could be 3C because <laughs> I, I do feel like Kasha holds the key to the lineup a little bit because of that partnership with Camp. Is it going to be less of a role for Camp if... Kasha, you know, hopefully he doesn't run into tr- injury trouble, but, but he always that's has. been a proven yeah. thing over the last few years. So as long as he stays in the lineup, I think he puts Kerfoot's role into a bit of, you know, a question, obviously. And I think Mikheyev, you know, that opens up a spot. We've seen Kerfoot on that left side with the second line. That's probably the right spot for him in terms of, you know, how much money he makes and what he can do. But I'm not convinced that's going to be the case. And if you're Alex Kerfoot and you're not the third line center anymore and you're not being trusted as the second line left winger because the second line left winger who makes less than you is out then where do you belong in this lineup and and I, he is a very useful forward but if you're being paid 3.5 million dollars on this team and I've long said this it's a problem if you don't if you're undefined mm-hmm. if you're undefined at 3.5 million dollars on this team which is pinching every penny and is trying to maximize the LTIR you know loophole in the salary cap or in this collective bargaining agreement right now on the eve of the NHL season, I mean, that's a problem. So I've, you know, we can go back to the expansion draft. Mm -hmm. We don't have to do that. The the decision was made to bring in McCann so that you could serve him up, and I get that. But I think Kerfoot has to define himself. Kerfoot has to become as important as he was the moment John Tavares went out in the playoffs, and he stepped up. How is he going to step up this year? I think that's one of the big storylines for the Leafs this year. You you nailed it in the playoffs. That was... The version of Alex Kerfoot that we saw in the playoffs after John Tavares' injury, I, I've i never seen that player in a Leafs uniform before then. I hope we see it this season because, you know, William Nylander, I think, obviously, obviously he really performed strongly in the playoffs. But I think it was a little overstated, though. We've never seen him like this. I mean, we've never seen it like that in a moment that mattered that much. We've seen weeks where William Nylander is ripping through the NHL doing whatever he wants. We've never seen that from Alex Kerfoot in Toronto. And if he can find a way to unlock that, and here's the thing, this is way too lofty of a challenge to put it a player like this. But last year, Zach Hyman was the guy that you threw on any line and he could play his game, but a little different depending on where it needed to be. And I do, I'm not saying I think Kerfoot can do this, but if he's going to prove to be anywhere near worth the three and a half he's making, that's the role that it is. It's you're getting a spell on this left wing. You're going to play center for a couple of games. You're going to go down and invigorate the fourth line. You're going to kill. So like, it has to be, you're going to do a little bit of everything. That's the where that's the world where I think he makes the most sense. 100%. I mean, the beauty of Zach Hyman is he always found a way to be productive, to help his line mates. Alex Kerfoot, when not, you know, showcased on his line to not be the centerpiece of the line. And he was on that second line. He was the guy who was, you know, everything ran through. He was the one that drove that line. And William Nylander was put in a position to be a very dominant forward in those games. And even before that, before the Tavares injury, I guess it was only a couple shifts. But Hyman always showed that he could help who he was with. Kerfoot needs to find a way where he's lifting uh, his teammates. And it can't just be when he's given loads of ice time in the middle of the ice on a second line. He's got to do it with whoever he's playing with. Yep. Well, well said. Uh, that's Justin Cuthbert, Brent Gunning here with you. Got about an hour and a half left in the show coming up next. My, my friend quote unquote, cause we've talked to him 
you know, on the show. So friend of the show, but your actual friend, you shared him out on Twitter. Uh, Julia McKenzie coming up with us next. Uh, we'll talk a lot more hockey. There'll be tons of it today on Sportsnet today across the Sportsnet radio network. today Brent Gunning Justin Cuthbert alongside me here with you for a little less than an hour and a half left in the program tons of hockey talk going to dive back in the NFL as well in the next hour Gary Grambling of uh, the Monday morning quarterback will join us then but joining us right now you know I I joke friend of the show I've had him on a couple times a tweak him about the Montreal Canadiens but actual friend of yours Justin Julia McKenzie uh, joins us now Julian how you doing today I'm doing very well. Uh, happy Thanksgiving to you both, JC. Uh, always good to hear you on the airwaves. I knew that if Sportsnet Fan 590 was going to ask me to co-host a morning show as you know, as, on a guest tip, they would su- definitely uh, become calling to you. So congratulations on the fact that you get to, to sub in for today. Oh, that's too kind, buddy. I mean, I mean, I'm honored to be on the list of people that you reach out for to have a beer with when you are in the city. Um, so proud to be on that list, and I hope... I can stay on that list. Uh, what's going on? Um, obviously, you've got a lot on your plate, but it's a holiday Monday, and and you're you're choosing to work. Uh, well, I mean, today's I think like today's the first time, maybe since like I was in like CJEP, where I've had like Thanksgiving Monday off. I'm not going to bore you guys with what CJEP is. If you if you know, you know. Um, but I, yeah, I had, like a, I, I had a roommate in, in Windsor from Quebec and he told me all about it. I can never hear the story of, of having it explained to me again. So I really appreciate you not walking us down that road. <laughs> I, I told that's fine. Yeah. I don't know. Just, uh, today's, uh, just a chill day. Uh, I think I'm recording the Chris Johnston show later today and, uh, I have who, a story. Who, no, wait, wait. I've never heard of that guy. I don't know who that is. Oh my God. No, we love CJ. That I'm wasn't kidding. an opportunity for you to plug by the way. No, well, it's funny you say that because I was just about to say I have a story from the athletic dropping like imminently. So like I was gonna if I wasn't gonna plug the show, I was gonna plug something else anyway. I'm shameless. That you can plug. Um yes. no problem there. Uh so let's let's get into it a little bit. Mark Bergevin, uh he didn't appreciate the question last week about his future. Probably wasn't the time or place, and I get that. But people do want to know, and I think that's one of the big storylines uh, ahead of the Canadian season. Is he going to re up? Does he want to re-up? Does Jeff Molson want him to re-up? How would you forecast the future of Mark Bergevin? Here's what I'll say about that uh, line of questioning that came up at that press conference. I'm still convinced nobody would have asked him about it had the news not come out that Mark Bergevin wasn't going to answer questions about it until the end of the season, not been brought up before the press conference. And maybe, you know, other journalists should have respected that. But I also wonder if journalists would have just like kind of held off if uh, they had just announced the news that it was just, you know, the fact that it was a press conference for Carey Price being admitted to the player assistance program as opposed to having that. And then, oh, yeah, right. Mark Bergman's not going to answer questions about that. This whole situation is a bit weird to me because Mark Bergman is coming off a Stanley Cup final run. Uh, yes, you could say he's missed the playoffs all these different seasons consecutively. But at least when it comes to building the team, he he can make a case that, you know, he's put them at least in the right direction. Maybe maybe they take a step back this year. They have some prospects they could 
rely on for the future. And and for the team, they might hope to eventually ascend to being a true contender one day. It seems as if Bergevin's reset has worked. Yes, there's all the other bad trades that have happened throughout the tenure and then the Logan Mayu story as well. It's not to say that it's all been glowing for Mark Bergevin, but I would have imagined that Jeff Molson might have seen enough from his tenure to say, you know what, it might be worth re-upping him. So I just wonder if it is a money thing, if it's a desire thing as well. I mean, I think being a general manager in Montreal is probably the hardest job of all 32 GM jobs in in the league, considering the amount of attention that's pressed up on you in English and in French. Uh, I, I, there's no other market I can think of that has anything remotely close to that. So I, I think it could be a question of pressure. It could be a question of desire. Maybe he wants another opportunity that's a little higher in the front office. It is just speculation at this point, but it is just very strange that Mark Bergevin at this point, there's no word on if he'll be back or not. Genius move on his part if he's trying to climb higher and higher up the hockey ops department because if he does that, then there's someone beneath him that he can fire if this thing all goes awry. So definitely a genius move to to climb up there. You know, you mentioned the idea that this could be a money thing. It could be tied to compensation. You know, again, it's a very weird situation. It's an awkward one in that you have a guy who's coming off a trip to the Stanley Cup final. You also look at the state of the team going forward and it's, there are definitely some good pieces you like, but there are also some some question marks about what the team is going forward. And then you throw in the aspect of the fact that they want a GM, I'd imagine, who is bilingual, who can speak both languages. And, you know, not to say that that is super limiting and there's no other guys they can go out and get, but, you know, it does limit the pool a little bit. How much do you think that aspect of it, the, the language aspect, plays in to the compensation that Bergevin could potentially be asking for, saying... If it's me, who? if it's not me, who else is it going to be, kind of? That, I think, also adds to the strangeness of this, right? Uh, if the Canadians were so hell-bent on getting someone else to fill in for Mark Bergevin, the best possible guy just re-up for another few years in Tampa Bay. I've always said that if I was ever Jeff Molson and I wanted the best possible general manager for this team, no disrespect to Mark Bergevin, but I'm taking the flight to Tampa Bay. I'm meeting with Julian Brisebois. I'm putting down an empty check in front of him, and I'm just asking him, what do you want? Because Julian Brisebois has proven not only to be the best uh, Quebec GM, but the best GM in the entire league, in the National Hockey League. So if, if it's a question of that, well... Mark Bergevin is the best guy that they have right now. Not to say that there aren't options. Mathieu Darge uh, out in Tampa Bay, funny enough. Uh, I forget his exact position within the organization, but that's somebody who whose name I've heard thrown out as a potential replacement, for example. So if the Canadians ever decide, you know what, we're going to go that route. But I, I've just, unless Mark Bergevin himself is just not feeling this position, I'm not sure why the Canadians wouldn't opt to give Mark Bergevin a deal that would be, you know, worth him getting. But maybe there's a whole bunch of other questions that we don't even know about. Maybe something happened in the offseason that has given George Jeff Molson pause. But I'm, I'm not exactly sure what has led to this point. It's a very strange thing going on. A lot of people are trying to ask questions about it. And I haven't really found any clear answers on it. So, Julian, I haven't been able to gloat about predicting a few weeks back with you that uh, Brady Kachuk would be the last RFA on the board. So I guess that's me doing that right now. But listen, I don't think you, I, or anyone really thought that it would take this long. The expectations aren't really high in Ottawa. I mean, I think they're expected to take a step. But doesn't this situation sort of threaten to undermine any progress that they make this year? How dire is it that 
Kachuk is still not in Ottawa. And what do you think it means for the future between an organization and a player that many expected to be the, the future captain of that organization? I think if this is a negotiation that goes into the season, then I think I would be, if I was an Ottawa Senators fan, I'd be genuinely concerned. I, I think if it gets to a point where, you know, I think we're still like a day out from the actual season starting. I don't remember exactly when Ottawa's first game is, but it's happened before where guys negotiate in the offseason, it goes into training camp, and then maybe like a day or two before the season starts, they're signed up, they're all ready to go. Uh, but yeah, I think it is very strange that Brady Kachuk at this point has not had his deal set. I mean, even the uh, Pedersen and, and Quinn Hughes in Vancouver were able to get their stuff done, but Brady Kachuk all of a sudden is, is still the last guy standing. And then you're hearing all the reports about how his, his dad, Keith, is, is in on it. Matthew Kachuk has even spoken about it. Oh, does that, does that happen in other markets? I really thought that only happened here <laughs> where guys' dads were big storylines. And this go, this isn't even the guys just here. This go back to Kadri's time here. So I'm, I'm very happy to see this happens elsewhere. Oh, my God. Yeah, that, that's a very fair point, too. Yes, it does happen in other markets, believe it or not. But, yeah, it's, it's, it is a very strange situation. But in terms of whether it undermines the season or not, I wouldn't worry about that until, like, say if it turns into like a William Nylander situation where it's like nearly half the year and this guy has not necessarily been in the lineup. Uh, I, if I'm Ottawa, you're trying to lock this guy up for as many years as you can. This is a guy who you've hit a home run on in terms of drafting him in the draft year that he was taken, 2018, if I remember correctly. You can tell me if I'm wrong. I just know it's the Asperia Kakanyemi year. Gee, I wonder why that connection is being made. Brady Kachuk is, is proven to be, if not the face, one of the main faces of this Ottawa Senators team. And they're expecting to punch above their weight class this year because they feel they could contend for a playoff spot. And he's going to be a huge reason why. And even if they don't make the playoffs, the Ottawa Senators have shown us from last year that even if they're not necessarily a playoff team, they're going to be able to take some wins off some quality opponents in their division. So it wouldn't surprise me if even if they miss the playoffs, there's going to be some random game in the year where like Ottawa tries to like throw everything they can at like Boston or like a Toronto or something. And they end up stealing some points. So they really need him in the lineup. But I think if I'm a Senators fan right now, I'm going to wait until like the first quarter of the season if he's not signed yet. But I also expect him to be signed relatively soon. So the Kachucks think one thing and the Senators clearly think another thing. And clearly those are the two ends of the spectrum. So where do they meet in the middle or what would be a fair number on Brady Kachuk? That's a good question. Uh, it just goes down to, you know, for the Senators, just trying to buy up as many years as you can, I think. I think if you lock them up for, what, seven, eight years is what's been thrown out. I think that's an ideal situation. But maybe they also are thinking something else. Maybe the Kachucks want something so that way they can get to UFA years. And then if, you know, Kachuk wants to eventually meet up with his brother, as we've kind of joked about on different shows, like, hey, maybe there's that option there. If I'm the Senators, I'm trying to lock him up seven, eight years. Uh, I don't have the exact numbers in my head as to how much it would work. I don't know if eight by eight by eight probably wouldn't work, but like you need to lock this guy up for a considerable amount of years and some good turn because he's proven to be a face for your team. He's turning himself into one of the premier power forwards in the National Hockey League. The Senators need to keep Brady Kachuk at all costs. I think what it's going to come down to, and I think the the dance that's kind of being done there, and it, you know, it just goes back to deals they've signed in the past. Thomas Shabbat didn't get, I, I think he might've got a little, but he didn't get a ton of bonus money up front. And if you look at the deals that Benajad just got, and I know that's a different player. That's a guy you're buying up all UFA years. And he's proved, I, I understand all that. It feels to me like the, the what's happening in the camp is 
if you're a Brady Kachuk and you realize you're not going to get any bonus money, you're saying, well, I want all the money then. Like, if I don't get all the money right now, you got to give me all the money. And it's got to be maybe a million more on the AAV than you'd like if I'm not going to get the bonuses up front. And I do wonder if the, you know, even though the Sens don't want to do it, if the most likely thing here that happens is both sides blinking to a certain extent and you end up with a a bridge deal that's not quite Pedersen, but something in and around there. I, I, I wonder if that, that kind of makes the most sense there. I do want to kind of just look at the Atlantic at a kind of 500-foot level. It's a it's mm. a really fun division to kind of preview this year. I think Florida is maybe, to me, the ultimate wild card. If you told me they're going to finish second or win the division, I, I'm not necessarily putting them there, but I don't think you're crazy. I think Tampa's good, but they took a step back. We just talked about how great that third line is. They're all gone. Boston, a year older. They just lost their second-line center. That that kind of matters. And the Leafs, I mean, I, I, I'll talk about them at nauseum, so I'll, I'll let you opine there. But in terms of the kind of top four of that division, I, I'm really curious to see See how it shakes out. Uh, so what's funny is, is I, I know I did didn't mention exercise. Montreal. I know. Sorry. I know. <laughs> no, 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 it's all good. Uh, I did this exercise for myself just to see what I have the divisions looking like. And I looked at the Atlantic and this is my top four. Like I'm all in on the Florida Panthers being a good team this year. So much so that I think they could win the Atlantic division. I think Toronto's second place, Tampa Bay in third, but they've shown that they don't necessarily need to win the division to win a Stanley Cup. And this is a team that has logged so much mileage over the last calendar year. Like we were, we've just like a week or two out for their one year anniversary of winning their Stanley Cup in the bubble. Like that's how much hockey they've played over the last 365 days. And I'm giving the Bruins the fourth spot in that division. And they're ultimately going to be a wild card team. I think Montreal, I've said this that they're probably going to compete for a wild card spot. I think the carry price thing kind of complicates matters. I mean, I I was not surprised initially, but that was before uh, the news dropped late last week that he was going to be in the player assistance program. But I was not surprised when I heard that carry price was not going to be available for the Canadians for the first few games, at least of the season. But now that he's in this program, I think it throws a lot of stuff out of whack. I mean, I don't know if it's fair to expect that he's going to be even ready for the first, you know, in November, when I think is the earliest he could join it. Cause he hasn't even skated all of training camp on top of the fact that they have all these injuries and that might actually hamper them uh, in terms of their start for the year. But Florida, Toronto, Tampa, and Boston, those are the top four teams I have in the Atlantic and Boston again, as a wild card team. I, I, I think the, the division is pretty stacked and the teams that are in there, they're all like really good teams, teams that could, you could easily see going on a run, you know? So this is a really fun division to follow. It might be, it might be the most fun division in hockey to follow. But then again, I think the central, the metropol- met- metropolitan, excuse me, might have something to say about that. Julian, there's uh, big games on the marquee for the first few nights of the season. We have the uh, Toronto-Montreal rematch. We have Tom Wilson at home, not on Broadway, but at home versus the New York Rangers. And we have the most recent expansion team, uh, at the previous most recent expansion team. What stands out for you in terms of appointment viewing as we open the season here? Man, all three of those games, you can make an easy case for that because Seattle and Vegas, like I, I want to see what Seattle looks like. I have not had an opportunity to watch them all preseason and looking at what their division looks like right now, they have a shot at making the playoffs. I mean, the three California teams, I don't expect them to compete. So they really have to kind of battle it out with like Vancouver and Calgary, right? So uh, yeah, I, I think Seattle has a fighting chance to make the playoffs this year, and it starts with that game against Vegas, a team that is going to have to – it's going to be all or nothing for that team this year. 
Uh, the Toronto Montreal, obviously, like, you know, there's the rivalry, there's all the, the rebel we remember from the playoffs, but I'm not going to lie to you. Like, I, I kind of want to see Montreal play against like a U.S. team for once. So I'm actually <laughs> looking more forward to them when they play the Buffalo Sabres, I think like the very next night or later this week, just to be like, oh, wow, the Canadians are in a U.S. city. They're playing against a team that's not in a Canadian division. What are they going to look like against the Buffalo Sabres? I know it's the Buffalo Sabres, but it'd be just nice to see. Um, I'm trying to remember the other matchup that, oh, right. The Rangers and the Capitals, the Rangers just all of a sudden decided, okay, we're going to build a lineup that is just going to actively seek and destroy Tom Wilson. Is that going to work? Is that going to turn into a game where we're just going to see a fight at the, off the top of the game? And then, you know, hockey's being played after that, or we're going to get the start, stop, start, stop fighting that we saw in that one matchup earlier in the year. I'm I'm curious about that matchup now, and I know some people are going to be like, oh, you see how exciting fighting is? No, fighting's not supposed to be that exciting. It's just that with the mess that's been made between those two teams, you kind of have to watch. So if I were to put it in terms of one, two, three, I'll say Rangers Capitals at the top, Seattle, Vegas, number two, and then Montreal, Toronto, number three. But I'll definitely be watching number three. You you sound like me as I'm actively watching like the one of the three big boxing fights a year. I'm like, I hate this fighting. I don't care about boxing. No one even <laughs> likes this stuff. I definitely didn't pay 70 bucks for this pay-per-view. No chance. No chance. Oh, who who even on. likes it? Who likes it? Uh, I, I, look, I, we we will uh, we'll save the fighting topic uh, for, for another day. Uh, you mentioned the Sabres. First time in history. Anyone's been excited to see them play outside of uh, the players' families. Jack Eichel. Oh my God. What do we think is going to happen there? Like what, what is, what is the end game for this situation? This is a player who needs surgery. This is a player who needs a fresh start. Like I am, I am beyond frustrated for him in terms of, you know, the way his NHL career is gone. This is a guy who should be kind of hunting down Austin Matthews to be the one B for the great next American superstar. And it's just been, I would, I was about to say stop start, but it feels like it's never even really started for this guy. What do you think ends up happening with Eichel? Free Jack Eichel, first of all. Yes. This is a guy who we should be seeing on Team USA at the Olympics in February. We're making the big deal about Canada, obviously, because of the country that we live in. But I still think Team USA, with the weapons that they have, they should be a fighting force at the Olympics. And Jack Eichel should be a big reason why. But unfortunately, it doesn't look as if we're going to be able to see that for Team USA. At this point, I, I, I think that we're probably not going to see him move until maybe some point like, you know, later in the year or or maybe it's something where he just gets shelved and we don't see him play at least until maybe this year's a wash for him. I think the ideal time was the offseason just before the free agent frenzy started. I, I would have thought that he was going to go to L.A. or Vegas and then they made their moves to, to you know, pretty much show up their center depth and, and their forward depth. I thought the Canadians were going to be in on him, but I don't know if they ever really were in on him. But looking at what their roster was looking like, it would have just been a fun thing to just see Mark Bergevin try to make some move to land Jack Eichel, considering the value on him might have been dropping with all these teams feigning interest in him. The Rangers were toyed as a possibility as well, but that never came to fruition. There were so many opportunities for the Buffalo Sabres to offload Jack Eichel. And we're at this point now where I'm not sure how many of these teams are genuinely still interested, one, and two, what these offers look like. There's no way, considering what he's waiting on in terms of this surgery, that the offer that the Buffalo Sabres would have wanted is what they're going to get from any of these teams who might be interested. I've heard there's like a few interested, but I imagine there might have been way more interested in Jack Eichel earlier in the offseason. And I think the Buffalo Sabres missed an opportunity 
for for them to capitalize on that. So I don't I don't see him moving uh, for the foreseeable future, just because a lot of teams are just pretty much set with the teams that they have right now. Unless the Sabers have some move that comes in that just kind of blows their socks off. Yeah, that's exactly it. You you need you need a dance partner that has a big salary to trade back that that you'd actually want, or you need somebody with a lot of cap room on the books. And those teams uh, don't really exist out there. Uh, Julian, thanks so much for the time, man. Really, really appreciate it. Hey, man, thanks so much for having me. All the best for the rest of the show, JC. I'll uh, I'll talk to you when I talk to you. I guess. Uh, indeed, we'll ta- we'll chat soon, buddy. There we go. There he is. Uh, Julie McKenzie, the athletic and host of zone time on Yahoo sports. Uh, JK McKenzie. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter uh, there. The it's funny uh, him mentioning Bergevin with wanting to get in on the Eichel trade with Bergevin's like squash buckling nature. I half expect him to get on the phone and be like, buddy, I got a new surgery. Forget these two. You've been looking at. I got a guy in Bell Rue, or some French town out in Montreal. I just like Mark Bergevin. I, he, is he is in like it's the Bill Simmons thing, the Tyson zone. Like there is no story or thing you can tell me about Mark Bergevin that I don't believe. Like he is the ultimate wild card in the league, and it, I, I think it's really interesting the conversation we had about him there and what happens in Montreal because again, he's coming off a Cup final run, and it, it seems like he's saying pay me, but it also seems like he's saying, God, this is such a tough job. I don't know how long I can do this. Yeah, I think the conversation kind of went full circle there beautifully because. You know, you start with him, the swashbuckler, and he didn't really show any interest, it seemed, in Jack Eichel when clearly that was a need, right? Like, if there's anything that's... Well, there's a lot of things that have held back the Montreal Canadiens despite going to the Stanley Cup final last year, but that's the big thing. What if it was Jacques Eichel? That'd be so much better, (laughs) If Jacques Eichel was was an NHL player, surely he'd be leading the charge with the Montreal Canadiens and putting them in a far better position than they're in because they do lack that center depth. And, of course, losing Phil Deneau, a completely different player... Mm -hmm you know, really hurt them in that regard. And Mark Bergevin's at that point in his career. He's not trying to protect the next five years. He's trying to make best use of the next maybe five, six, seven months. He might be at that position in his career or maybe just looking to move up and, you know, take a little bit of the stress off because clearly we joked about how he's aged. He looks like a different man now that he's, since he started. It seems like this is a high pressure situation that's got the best of him a little bit, but that one last move... I could have seen it happen with Jack Eichel. Yeah, easily, easily uh, could have seen that. Um, we're we're going to talk to Luke Fox, kind of dial in the conversation more on the Leafs in in just a minute here. Were you uh, how surprised were you by Julian's answer of the Florida Panthers to win the Atlantic Division? Like I said, I can see it happening. I'm not I'm not rushing to Vegas. I'm not rushing to to my favorite betting site to to put out a couple dollars on that. But I don't think it's nuts by any means. I may or may not have rushed Ooh, to my okay, favorite betting site go. to put a future on the Florida Panthers. I, I I do think there's a really good opportunity for them to win the division for a couple of reasons. Like I I mean the Leafs are going to be a good team. I think they're going to be right there in the mix. But am I confident that they can? win the division, the toughest division maybe in hockey? No, I'm not really there yet. Sure. I think it's they've got definitely got a chance, but maybe shouldn't be considered the front runner. And what did we see from Tampa last year? Cruise control. People didn't believe Tampa was going to get out of the first round last year because they kind of just floated through and made their way through that 56 games and got to the point where, okay, this is what really matters most is the playoffs. And I think we'll see that exact same thing from Tampa this year. So I think the division is wide open despite it being so strong and so top heavy. And I think Florida is going to have more motivation maybe than any team that's looking forward to the playoffs. They haven't proven themselves. They don't have that luxury to be like, okay, we're just going to get there and then we'll perform. 
they got to perform right away. Yeah, that, that's interesting. We see that a lot in the NBA with a team who takes the regular season a lot more ser- seriously than a true contender like Tampa does. And we'll see how it plays out in the Atlantic. We'll see what Luke Fox thinks about the Atlantic. He joins us next. Got a Leafs preview. What's going on with the bottom pair? Who's taking Mikheyev's job? Who's taking the top six left wing spots? Let's find out. Luke Fox joins us next here on Sportsnet today. Second hour, either or, whatever you want. Both are true. Sportsnet today, we're getting Justin Cuthbert alongside me. Just had a wonderful chat with Julian McKenzie of The Athletic, Yahoo, many platforms, talking, writing, just a multi-platform beast, much much like yourself uh, here today, written work talking spoken word right now it's it's wonderful we're gonna have luke fox and in, in just a moment here and you know we were talking about the atlantic and kind of the, the power ranking here and i am pretty the more it, it's funny i can't get all the way there because in the back of my mind there's still the big bad boston bruins i am 95 percent sure i know who the three playoff teams are going to be boston may get a wild card i'm not writing them off in that regard i'm pretty confident it's going to be the leafs tampa and Florida. And as my technical director just told me, the Fox is in the den. Luke Fox jukebox joining us now. Sportsnet.ca. Multi-platform beast as well. Seeing him on TV. Luke, how are you doing today? Well, I'm doing pretty good. We're getting we're getting down to it, right? Wednesday's the the Leafs opener. It's starting to feel real. How? Uh, that was the, that felt like a long preseason. So uh yeah, I'm excited for things to start getting going. How do you in terms of ways you've been introed on the station, how do we feel about the foxes in the den? How do we feel about that? I like it. I was I was on Vancouver radio before, and they, it went for like a few months where they always introed me with uh, what does the fox say, mm. um, which was pretty fun the first time. And then, <laughs> uh, yeah, a, lot, too, a little too many ring-a-ding-dings after a while. Yeah, just so... <laughs> It's a it's a very funny joke the first time, and then yeah, just yeah, gets yeah. incrementally less funny. And I can make that joke because I have uh, I have friends out there in Vancouver who you may have been on with. So I'm allowed. I'm allowed. Uh, we're all poking fun at friends here. All right. <laughs> Looking at the Atlantic, uh, we're going to dive down to the to the Leafs in a second. What does the Mikheyev injury do? Has the top six shakeout? All that stuff. Big picture. Looking at the Atlantic, I I was just telling Justin. I think I'm pretty confident. I'm not confident on the order but that the top three teams in the Atlantic will be the two Florida teams and the Leafs. I think Boston is still going to be there in the mix, but I just think they're, they're, they're late in their life as an elite team and, and the, the Krejci retirement is going to hurt them. Where are you at on, on the Atlantic and, and how to kind of power rank the, the top four teams there? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I guess I'd agree with you, although I might give Boston a, a little more credit. I'm not quite ready to write them off just yet i do think the the Krejci absence is going to hurt them i think the tuka rask absence as he uh recovers um from surgery and may or may not resign with them in like december january something like that i think that is a big question mark because all of a sudden they're going with a, a pretty inexperienced goalie tandem um we don't really know what uh Allmark is going to look like when he's playing behind uh, a real team, you know, is, is he the real deal or, um, you know, did he, did he pick up some nice numbers just, just playing, uh, you know, kind of tandem work uh, with a, a Buffalo Sabres team where, you know, I, I don't know 
how teams approach that that group as opposed to when you go into Boston, you, you usually bring your A game. So the, the, there's some question marks with the Bruins, but I also think they might have a little bit of magic in that this is Patrice Bergeron's final year on his contract. He hasn't committed to even playing in the NHL beyond this year. So I think we're going to see a little bit of urgency um, from the Bruins, and, and they could make some noise. I'm not quite ready to write them off yet. I think they're going to be in the mix. But, uh, you know, Florida seems to be the the trendy pick, right? That They seem to be the, the hipster favorite to, you know, either not only make the playoffs, but even as a cup choice. I think a lot of people are high on the Panthers. Maybe it's a good thing for the Leafs, Luke, that they the Bruins now have a goaltender who doesn't understand that inherently he's supposed to haunt <laughs> the Maple Leafs. Uh, you know, the Leafs start with the Habs on Wednesday, and then it's Ottawa, Ottawa to close the first, I guess, half week of the season. After only playing Canadian teams last year and only playing Eastern Canadian teams so far in the preseason, does this feel like a troll job to you, to someone who's watched every second of Maple Leafs hockey from the scheduling makers? Well, it, it, you know what it feels like? It just feels like it's a little dull. I, like, I'm really excited. Uh, I think it's the Rangers are, are their first opponent that isn't the, um, the Habs or, or the Senators. And I want to see what the Leafs look like against one of those. Like, they absolutely rolled through the, the preseason. Five and one. They more than uh, doubled the opposition scoring. But I'm not that high on the Senators, especially with, you know, Shabbat injured and Kachuk unsigned. And, and I'm not that high on, on the Canadians, quite frankly. I think they lost a lot of key pieces in the offseason. And the whole Carey Price situation um, has hurt them as well. So uh, it's one thing to to watch them play these these teams, which I am predicting to be non-playoff teams. It'll be quite another when they actually start facing some other teams and I think you get a better idea of how to judge them. Um, so, uh, but on the, uh, by the same token, the Leafs look pretty good. Uh, you know, I was listening to an interview with DJ Smith um, and he's like, this team is organized. They are playing regular season level hockey in the preseason. They look like they've come back with a purpose. Uh, and, and in just talking to the guys every day, there seems to be um, quite a focus, you know, they seem ready. And Morgan Riley said it, after uh, the game Saturday night, he's like, we're ready to rock. Uh, and, and you know what? I, I kind of appreciate how, uh, how focused and, and men- mentally strong they seem to be after what was an ugly, ugly finish. Uh, they seem to have turned the page pretty well. Now, of course, you know, we're actually going to see what happens. But uh, the attitude seems to be there. They, they seem to have the right mindset coming in. Uh, talking to Luke Fox here on Sportsnet today. The Fox is, in fact, in the den. Brent Gunning, Justin Cuthbert uh, alongside me. And I love that, by the way. I didn't weigh in earlier, but I love the Fox. Okay, so I was going to save this for the end, but I'm just throwing it out there. Any technical directors out there who want it, not what the Fox says, but Foxy Lady, uh, Jimi Hendrix. I think we, we, need to, we need to do that if, if we're going to have uh, Fox-related Fox songs uh, for, for Luke. All right, back to hockey and the and the Leafs. In terms of in in, in I, I like what you said about their their ability to kind of flip the page and be ready for this season and attacking it with an urgency. That is really 
not really easy. It's it's difficult to a certain extent to do, but that's going to be really hard when they hit the skids for the first time. Because look, as good as I think we all think this team is going to be this season, they're going to have their moments where they stub their toe. They're going to lose three of four. They're going to lose three in a row. And I think that's the question for this group is how quickly, if at all, do the walls kind of cave in if it looks like the season, not not the season slipping away from them, but it just looks like any positive momentum or that, that locked-in ability they have if they – are they able to keep it when they hit their first little patch of adversity? Because every team goes through them. Yeah, no, and, and before I get to uh, responding to that, I will say that that Sirius XM okay. has introduced <laughs> has introduced me with Foxy Lady. Okay. So, <laughs> but yeah, back to Lee's. Um, so <laughs> what they did, what they did in the off season, which for me is really interesting, is they hired Greg Harding, um, who's a, a peak performance coach that works on athletes' mental side of the game. He's worked with Tom Brady. He's worked with Michael Phelps. Like th- this, this guy um, does not come easy. Sheldon Keefe put it put it pretty nicely. He said, "You don't go out and hire Greg Harden. He decides whether he wants to work for you." Um, so the organization made uh, kind of extended themselves to go to great lengths to try and improve the mindset of this core that has failed time and time again in the postseason because there is a real belief that. They've been the better team in a couple of these series. They just have mentally cracked. Um, and I kind of like the fact that they're they're dealing with that and not ignoring it. So Harden has come in. He, he actually worked with John Tavares quite extens- extensively in terms of getting his mind right to come back to the ice after what was just a, a horrific-looking concussion um, and, and a traumatic experience for the whole Tavares family. Uh, and John had said, you know, working with him helped him get in the right mindset to even come back to the game and, and remember why he loves playing the game and get over kind of the anxiousness of returning to the ice. Like, th- that is no small thing. So Harden's working one-on-one with these guys, and I think there is kind of a mental block. Um, you know, the Leafs have termed it uh, a need for a killer instinct. And that's the kind of thing that I think that they need to to rely on themselves and, and remember, hey, we're pretty good here. We have a ton of talent. Um, so, yeah, we're going to go through stretches where we lose three games, four games. We're going to go through stretches where the power play goes cold. But once it starts getting in their heads, I mean, that that's that's where it, it, it snowballs and becomes a, a serious problem. So, uh, you know, Kyle Dubas, to his credit, has gone out of his way to kind of build those resources for the players uh, to lean on it and try and work on the the mental side of the game. Because, like you said, there are going to be dips, there are going to be stretches where things aren't going well, and it's it's the ability to stop that and get back on track quickly and not let it fester that's going to be key um, to to their success. So, but again, we'll we'll see how it plays out, but. Uh, it feels uh, like there's a ton of urgency. I think, you know, jobs may, may be on the line. I don't think it's a stretch to say that from from the president all on down, right? There's a, a direct through line. You know, Brendan Shanahan hitched his his vehicle to, to Kyle Dubas um, when there was more experienced guys available to build this roster. Kyle Dubas has doubled down time and time again on his core four. Uh, he re up Sheldon Keefe after a series in which I thought Keefe got out coached. He gave him an extension. And they, it was interesting. They, they even kept that a little bit quiet. Um, so there, there's a, a through line of belief from the president to the GM to the coach to the most important players on this team. You know, they could have traded Morgan Riley. They didn't. 
they said we'd rather keep him for a year and at, at good value and see what he can do. So uh, there, there's definitely a sense of urgency in heading into this season, and I think it's going to be fun theater either way. So, Luke, we li- we witnessed all the drama or what was really just brief disagreement and mild misunderstanding featured in the All or Nothing series. and Just you- a lot of Sheldon Keefe swearing, Re- really. Like, <laughs> if we're going to boil it down to the thing we saw the most, a lot of cussing from that man. Well, well my take is that it, if it wasn't for Keefe swearing, it should have been on Disney+. Plus. But <laughs> anyway, it was Amazon Prime and it was Elia McKay of front and center, I believe, in the first episode in terms of, like, the friction within the organization. So... You know, maybe it doesn't matter all that much because he's going to miss time here, but I'm curious what you think about his opportunity in the top six and how much it might have been the Leafs just placating to him and showing him or making him try to feel better about his situation and the situation that he was pretty clearly a little unhappy with. Yeah, I mean, you got a disgruntled guy uh, coming into a contract year, a big year for him. He's seen, you know, a guy like... Uh, Alexander Barabanov, who's uh, a buddy and, and the guy who he shares the same agent with, um, fall out of the Leafs lineup and then go get an offensive opportunity in San Jose. Probably thinking to himself, you know, yes, I'm I'm fast and I can kill penalties, but if I got a chance to play with uh, those guys in, in the top six, maybe maybe I could score some goals. Maybe my shooting percentage would come around. So uh, I think it, it there's a couple things going on there in, in terms of giving him that look beside Tavares and, and Nylander, and it's uh, let him get off to a good start. This guy's been with the organization for a while. Let's get him feeling confident. Um, and then it's also, you know, uh, a bit of a incentive for Michael Bunting to try and I'm going to show them a good box forward, but not only that, I'm going to challenge for McKayev's ice because I, I think I deserve to be there. And I think that internal competition, particularly amongst the left wingers is something that they want because they want someone to step up and grab it. You know, we saw last year, Jimmy Vesey was given that spot and he didn't grab it. So he, he ended up on waivers and out of the organization. And I think they want a sense of urgency there. And maybe it's a, a little bit, Hey, McKayev, we believe in you. We'll give you this head start. And I also wonder if part of it, and, and I don't have, you know, definite confirmation about it. it was just something i thought are they kind of showcasing him a little bit you know he he could be a guy who could be traded at some point he's in the final year of his deal so i wonder if he were to start out in that top six role and get a bunch of points with Tavares and nylander if he comes becomes a little bit more enticing for competition um to make a pitch for so that that was something else in my head but now with his injury um and we should get more clarity on that in a few hours uh i think it's probably bunting spot to start off in in the opening night that that's who i that's who i would put there as well the the thing i wonder with the thing i wonder with bund or sorry um with mckayev's injury now is what exactly like i understand i see the path forward right there from the start of the preseason when he's healthy but if michael bunting pops or not even pops but just proves to be a key cog on that second line or maybe he ends up on on the top line with with marner and matthews and it's richie who plays well it just feels to me like now there's a world where through again no fault of his own Ilya mikheyev is going to be forced back down into that bottom six and not to say i think he should be gifted a spot in the top six but it just feels to me like and again you look at the schedule we can all see a world where the leafs get off to a really hot start and the top six is clicking and once again even if he's only out a couple of weeks there's no job up there for for Ilya mikhaev it's just it is amazing how many stops and starts he has had in a relatively short time here in toronto yeah and i i feel bad for the guy because he 
until that the original wrist injury in his rookie year, he was really making an impression, you know, just on, on the fan base, on, on his teammates, on his coach, you know, that they love the fact that they had a, a penalty killer that they could trust. They love his speed. Um, they love his, his work ethic. You know, I've watched him during camp and everyone knocks his shot every single day after camp, he would stick around and, and take one timers um, and, and try and work on his shot. And, you know, and, and kudos to a guy like, William Nylander, who stayed hung around after camp one day, I watched and just fed him puck after puck after puck. Uh, this guy is determined, you know. Um, you know he could be sulky and, and whatever. I want out, or I'm not. I'm not in the top six. But he hasn't hasn't come in with that attitude. You know, he's coming in with the attitude of, okay, my shooting isn't there. I need to work on that. Okay, my my mental game isn't quite there. I, I get a little in my, in my own head on breakaways. So I'm going to work on that. Um, and, and he's, he's trying to improve himself. Um, so it, it is, it is quite a bummer. The fact that he went down and he got cross-checked by a guy who's going to be in the AHL, um, when the season starts, you know, it, it but that, but that's hockey. Um, so, uh, I, I'm rooting for him. I think he's a, a very likable guy, a guy you want to see succeed and you hope it's just a matter of, of his shooting percentage being bad and that that eventually is going to come around. But uh, in terms of the left wing, I think fans should, shouldn't read too much into who starts their opening night or who starts the next night. I, I feel with Sheldon Keefe, he's a tinker, right? He likes to experiment. And this is, he, this is the first time he's had 82 games to, to experiment. So I think we're going to see Richie with Tavares Nylander at some time. And I think we're going to see Bunting probably on all four lines throughout the season. Like there's going to be a lot of different combinations as they try and figure out what is the optimal lineup. So opportunity does knock with uh, Mikheyev out, and we believe Michael Bunting is going to get a lot of that opportunity. But William Nylander is also going to get a little bit of opportunity with Mikheyev out because he was out on the ice killing penalties in the final preseason game uh, against the Senators on Saturday night. So I'll just put it to you this way. What are your thoughts on William Nylander, the penalty killer? Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting when you because I look back, and I think he has about six and a half minutes of penalty killing time total in his whole NHL career. And probably some of that's by accident, just hopping over the boards a little too early or something <laughs> like, like that. That's a ridiculously no low number. But so what has happened is one, the, the Leafs keep losing trusted penalty killers. It seems every single off season and Hyman ate a ton of those minutes, right? He was, he was always um, first over the boards when it came time to kill a penalty. So it's partly by necessity. They need more bodies to help, kill penalties um you know i think david Kampf is going to be play a major role in that and i think it's good that they actually have a, a defensive center out there to take draws as opposed to having a guy like spezza take a an own zone draw on the penalty kill and then race off the ice for a guy who's more used to killing penalties um so kind of by necessity they're, they're trying to incorporate more forwards and part of it has to do with assistant Dean Chenoweth's approach to the penalty kill. He wants the Leafs to to sit back a little bit less and, and try and get in position and block shots. He wants them to be more aggressive. So uh, Keith in Nylander sees a guy that is great at hounding pucks, great at anticipating plays. He's He's been on a power play his whole life, so he kind of knows how the opposition is going to attack and hopefully anticipate. And he's a great skater, right? So you hope that um, he, he breaks up plays on entries um, or before the team gets set up in into their power play formation. Um, so he, he isn't ha- he doesn't have to block shots because he's racing around and breaking up before they even get a shot off. 
so it's an interesting strategy. It's a more aggressive approach to the penalty kill. And uh, the other thing is, if you're playing that way, you need more penalty killers because you're going to be exhausted because you're running around trying to uh, hound the puck as opposed to being in a defensive stance. So I think Keith has mentioned he might try Austin on the penalty kill. He might try John, who, who we saw a little bit Saturday night killing penalties. And uh, it's kind of expanding the role for these core players who, if you're going to pay them that much money, you might as well have them do a ton of work. I, I would love to hop in a time machine and go back to the day. Mm, no, that's too soon. Like the week after William Nylander signed his contract into December and tell people that we were going to come off a playoffs. We won't tell them what happened in the playoffs where William Nylander was the best leaf forward and he is now going to be counted on to kill penalties heading into the next NHL season. I just feel like that would have cratered the minds of about, oh, I don't know, 85% of, of everyone listening to this show right now. Uh, one thing I do have to ask you about, and I think those are really good points you make about the penalty kill. I think so often we, we worry about power play coaches and the scheme and how it's going to be. There's a plan on the penalty kill too. A lot of it's effort. A lot of it is desire, but there's a scheme out there as well. And the fact that the Leafs have a new one, I think that's going to benefit them. The top four D is set as set can get. They didn't trade Riley. That was an option they had on the table potentially this year. They chose to stick with it. What are you expecting from the third pair this year? It's going to start the year being Dermot and, and Sandine. Uh, Lilligren may factor in this at some point in time. What are your expectations from a third pair of two, not not rookies in Sandine and Dermot, but still young and inexperienced players? Yeah, it's it's going to be fascinating. I, I think it's going to be hard for either of those guys to to crack the top four. You know, Keith said himself, like our top four is pretty established at this point. He really has trust in Muzzin and Hall to to shut down the other team's top players. Um, Morgan Riley, uh, you know, I think he him and TJ Brody make a great pair. I, I think they uh, Riley's. Uh, uh, you know, best attributes come through with having Brody as as a security blanket, and he hardly makes a mistake, Brody. And I don't think he gets talked about enough. But as for the third pairing, um, Sheldon Keefe has has really put a challenge towards Travis Dermott lately. I I don't think he's particularly thrilled that you know he's he's getting you know two hundred plus games deep into his NHL career and hasn't made a strong push to be a top four defenseman yet. So he's putting pressure on, on Travis, both publicly and privately. You know, he mentioned on Saturday, the fact that he wants this guy to take a step and he's still waiting for him to do it. And now you got Timothy Lilligren, who's also kind of at a bit of a crossroads in his career. You know, this is his fifth year as a pro. It doesn't feel like it's been that long since the Leafs took him in the first round, but he's a right shot. Um, he's, more than spend enough time with the Marlies. He's ready for that next step. So Dermot's getting pressure um, from behind in terms of Lilligren, who has worked a lot with Sandine throughout um, their Marlies career and uh, are, are know each other well as partners. And they also have that lefty-righty balance. So I think this is a big year for Travis Dermot, even though he, he signed a contract and, and has another year of security beyond this year. Uh, He's, I wouldn't say he's in the coach's doghouse, but but he's borderline. Um, there, there's pressure on him to step up. Uh, so I think there's going to be a little bit of competition at bottom pairing. And Rasmus Sandin has been given the, the position on the second power play unit. Keith wants Dermott to establish himself as a bit more of a penalty killer, uh, especially with Zach Bogosian uh, leaving to go back to Tampa in the offseason. Um, so we'll see how it plays out. I would expect that the Dermot starts there opening night.
but I would also think that Lilligren gets a look at some point in the season. And um, kind of like with the, the left wing, there's going to be a little bit of an internal battle to, to see who can establish himself on the right side of, of the bottom pairing. Kyle Dubas brought in uh, a ton of bodies to compete for spots in this training camp. And, and as we know, you know, Gusev didn't work out and we know where Josh Hosang is going. But the guy who did make his mark is Andre Kasha, who seems to be, uh, you know, that wasn't the case in the last preseason game as Camp moved up in the lineup. But he seems to have a partnership with Camp. Who's, and that partnership is sort of changed the way we might view at least the bottom nine forward group in Toronto. I, I kind of feel like Kasha holds the key to the lineup and his inclusion, as long as he stays healthy, sort of changes things and, and maybe the expectations coming into the season. It might have a guy like Alex Kerfoot on the fourth line. So what do you make of Kasha's start with the Leafs, his partnership with Camp, and, and what that means for the entire Leafs lineup? Yeah, it's been, it's been an issue, right? Like the, the last, I don't know, three years plus that a third line identity has been something the Maple Leafs have have lacked, and we've seen bodies circle in and out of that of that um, unit, and they, but they haven't really stuck, right? They haven't had an identity. They haven't been trusted to shut shut down the the opposition's uh, top six, um, and as a result, we've seen maybe too many minutes go to the Leafs' top six. It, the balance has kind of been out of whack. But Keith loves Kasha, and he loves camp. Like, he's raved about these guys all camp long. So uh, the ideal would be that they have a, a shutdown line. If they chip in goals, great. But they have a shutdown line uh, on the third unit that can take more of the defensive zone draws, that can allow Matthews and, and Tavares, their lines, to take more offensive zone draws. And, you know, maybe take on a, a shutdown role. This is kind of like, you know, Philip Deneau light, maybe. Um, and if, if they can match up against uh, some of the, the other team's best players, then hopefully it gives Matthews and Tavares some opportunity uh, to feast upon the other team's third and fourth lines. So uh, I, I, I agree with you, Justin, in terms of, uh, you know, their success. Um, having a, a great impact on what the Leafs are are able to do in, in order to maximize the big guns up front. Big guns, Matthews and Tavares feasting, all things uh, I, I love. Uh, Luke Fox, thanks so much, buddy. I really, really appreciate the chat today. Yeah, have a great day, guys. There you go, Fox. Now, now leaving the den. There is no Foxy Lady here anymore. Foxy Lukey, I guess, would be would be better in that uh, that instance. All right, we'll we'll stop uh, there. I I like I love this point you're driving home about. Camp and Kasha, them together as a duo, and it's not even really about them together as a duo. It's about how many games of Andre Kasha are you going to get? And if if they're able to get a sizable chunk of the season out of him, and I always hate talking about players who are injury riddled like this. Like, it's not like he, you know, there are players who lack effort and it is a question of what you'll get for them. When a player's hurt, it's not from any ill doing of their own. It's just, it's it's a factor in their play. And I, I think you're right though, that the health of that line and the effectiveness of that line could be the difference between, you know, putting round point numbers on it. I know the 93, 94 point season and the 110 point season. Yeah, if you're the Maple Leafs, you need to depend on a free agent ad that's making 1.25 million to to make a you know a giant impression and be very critical to the success of the team. But then you're also depending on a guy who hasn't played much hockey because, as you mentioned, has that injury prone label. Like it's a double edged sword. You need this guy. You need him to be a factor. But if you lean too much on him, what happens if he's not there when it matters most? 
Not good is what happens probably in all in all uh, in all likelihood. Uh, a lot happened yesterday in the NFL. I dare say too much. I don't actually mean that, but man, it was just like it was. I felt like I I made the joke. I forget who. I think it was with Julian that I I I sometimes like to watch the boxing pay per view. I felt like I was in one yesterday. It was just haymaker after haymaker. Watching NFL games, the Chargers finishes nuts. The Packers are doing things, and then of course you get the Sunday nighter with the Bills taking care of business. Gary Grambling in the Monday Morning Quarterback Podcast joins us next on Sportsnet today. in the NFL nearly in the book sports dead today Brent Gunning Justin Cuthbert alongside me here with you for another 20 minutes or so a lot of Leafs talk today a lot of fun Leafs talk and you know again you never want anyone to see anyone hurt see anyone injured but the Ilya Mikheyev injury late 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 in training camp it definitely just threw a completely other wrinkle at us and uh, yeah it's definitely going to be something that uh, something that we should keep an eye on today but Diving in, diving into the NFL. Who better to do it with than our buddy, Sports Illustrated, host of the Monday Morning Quarterback Podcast, Gary Gramlin. Gary, how you doing today? I'm doing all right. How about you guys? Doing well, doing well. We got a wonderful day of NFL football under our belt yesterday. We got one more tonight. So so what's what's not to like? I mean, I could go tons of places with you. I I have to start with this this Chargers team. Watching them yesterday, it was just it, it, it was incredible to see, you know, Justin Herbert. He's a guy who has had these flash moments, but more times than not, he's kind of ended up on the losing side of him. That is, you know, the, the term kind of statement wing gets thrown around. And it's a little eye rolly, but I'm going to use it here. Beating that Cleveland team. That's a real team with a real defense. You go up and put 47 on them and, and you do it in the, the fashion they did at home. That that just felt like a big time moment from for Herbert yesterday. Yeah, and look, I mean, it, it was a, it was, oh boy, just as superstar performance as you can get from a quarterback. Uh, he, look, he, he got knocked around a little bit. He was under pressure. Uh, that was not an easy game against that Browns defense. And and to do what he did and basically go shot for shot when his defense, you know, the Chargers will be fine defensively going forward, I'm sure. But they're going to have days where they, uh, uh, they just can't. Uh, they don't always stop the run. I mean, it, there's going to be days like this, but uh, I mean, it was, uh, look, I, I, I'm not quite ready to do it, but I think we're on the verge of putting Justin Herbert in that class with Patrick Mahomes at the uh, absolute top of the league as far as uh, most valuable players. Well, quarterbacks have their like defining characteristics, and we sort of understand what that is from a Mahomes, and I think we're getting that understanding about Josh Allen and Justin Herbert's still like an unknown quantity unless you're, you know, you're, you're really diving into Chargers games on a weekly basis. So, so tell us, what makes him so special? And I'm curious how you think Brandon Staley has helped him, you know, expedite that natural progression of a young star quarterback. So it is that ability to play under pressure is the number one thing. And really, that's the number one thing with any great quarterback is, is you know, when, uh, when the heat is on, when, uh, when you got all the bodies sitting around you, you see a lot of guys fold, uh, the great ones just, you know, play like they, they normally would. Uh, his downfield accuracy is incredible. You know, there's arm talent. Uh, we know there are plenty of guys with big arms who uh, you don't quite know where the ball is going. His downfield accuracy and ball placement and touch is just sort of next level here. Uh, and again, it, it's it's I don't want to say it's better than Mahomes, but 
he doesn't have those uh, incredible wide open Tyreek Hill is running 20 yards behind the entire defense type of uh, throws presented to him. And yet when he has to go downfield, it's just it, it, it's incredible the way he's dropping the ball in right now. So uh, it is really uh, uh, he is as complete a package as you can get. And when you get a guy like that and you see a touch of this with uh, uh, what's going on with Matthew Stafford and, and the Rams right now, as a, a, a coach, as a play designer, as a play caller, uh, you basically have infinite possibilities. You, you can do essentially whatever you want, and that's what you're seeing right now with the Chargers. It was so funny to watch the the end of that game. And, I mean, you know, you have the the defining characteristic of that game that you mentioned is, is Herbert just chucking it all around the yard. But then at the very end of the game, you have Staley calling the play to not score the touchdown. You have the Browns dragging them into the end zone. I mean, like, we, we joke checkers, not chess. That that actually was, was uh, chess instead of checkers there. Yeah, and look – Good for the Browns there. A lot of defenses, what they do is they sort of stand back, and uh, and next thing you know, you know, running back will run up to the goal line and sort of take his knee, and that's it. The Browns had the presence of mind to basically throw him into their own end zone, which is uh, good for them. I mean, that was the only chance Cleveland had at that point. But we're seeing that, and we're seeing it going forward. You're seeing it with Brandon Staley's aggressiveness on fourth down. Uh, you know, a lot of that is obviously when Justin Herbert is your quarterback. You, you are more aggressive uh, by nature, but uh, we're seeing this, uh, you know, it's it's not quite an analytics thing because even before analytics was sort of the buzzword, uh, you had some coaches in the league who did this. But you're finally seeing just just coaches sort of embrace the confidence they should have in their offenses, especially in in the NFL right now. So, Gary, we have uh, one undefeated team, the Arizona Cardinals, uh, who may or may not be legit. And we have a few other, others like Buffalo, Tampa and the Chargers that we talked about that are clearly yeah, they look like elite teams on both sides of the football. But for most, for the most part, for me, Sundays have been spent watching and I guess gambling on painfully average teams. Is, yeah. is mediocrity <laughs> sort of more rampant than ever in the league this season, or am I just a uh, jilted gambler? I don't know if it's more rampant. Uh, I, I really think, look, I, I think every year, you, you know, if you went back like five years or ten years or whatever it is, you could probably uh, pick out, you know, three or four elite teams, three or four teams at the absolute bottom who are just not going to be competitive. And everyone else is just sort of lumped in. You usually get 20, 25 teams just lumped into that. Uh, if things break right, they could win 11 or 12 games. If things break really wrong, they're only going to win four or five games. I mean, the Chargers have been in that class for, for half a decade at least. Uh, and that's just sort of the way it goes. It's, it's a much more uh, evenly matched league than we think. I think what's happening this year is you're seeing a lot of teams just sort of oscillate win-loss uh, more, than, more than normal. I, I'm not sure exactly what's behind that. But uh, it is. Look, it, it's, it's a league where, uh, I, I don't know, I mean, you look at a team like the Raiders, I think the Raiders might have been able to win like 11 games. They might win five games here. I mean, it, it, it's just there are a lot of teams like that where it's, it's going to come down to uh, basically one or two plays every week or one or two fluky uh, special teams fumbles or, or penalties or something like that. And that's, that's the way the league is right now. I wonder if I wonder if the reason for that is and I want to be clear I'm not trying to overstate this but it felt like and again this could be total prisoner of the moment stuff so feel free to tell me I'm wrong 
But I feel like if we go back in time, three, four, maybe even five seasons, the quote unquote middling quarterback or the low end quarterback was a lot lower. Like even a guy like Zach Wilson, who has looked brutal at times for the Jets, you see it. There are wow plays that can be made there. There are throws that can be made. And I wonder if if part of what Justin's getting at in terms of the kind of bigger, mushy middle group is that the quarterback play, not that there are so many elite guys now, but just that the quote unquote bad quarterback in the league is actually not all that bad compared to what we would have said about that guy three or four years ago. No, I think you're exactly right. I think if you went back five years, you'd probably find maybe, you know, 10, uh, at least five, maybe up to 10 quarterbacks who just weren't good enough. Uh, what you're seeing right now, I, I think it's a result of, I, I think coaching is far, far better. And I think there's even a huge difference between five years ago and right now. Uh, and part of it is coaching is better. Part of it is is this sort of really trendy system, this, uh, we'll loosely call it the, the Kyle Shanahan, Sean McVay type system. That's a really quarterback-friendly system. And you have a lot of teams around the league sort of copying it. And, uh, it, you know, that that's what you're getting right now. It's, it, it's sort of lifting these, uh, you know, Ryan Tannehill is, is a is a quality talent, uh, but you see, you know, he goes from sort of a below average starter in Miami to a you know borderline star in Tennessee, and uh, you know you, you're seeing some of the same things with guys who really, you know. <laughs> would probably five years ago not have much of a hope in, in uh, some of these old – it was that sort of like old West Coast system, and everyone's trying to do sort of the Andy Reid type thing, but there just aren't many guys in the league who can do the Andy Reid type thing and, and do it successfully and teach it successfully. Ben Roethlisberger obviously hasn't followed the same path as, say, a Zach Wilson who can show some flashes of uh, quality quarterbacking play, uh, but he's sort of on the same level this year in terms of not – you know, performing very well most of the time. But he did have a very good uh, performance in a win for the Steelers over the Broncos. He's not going to suck that organization back in this season, is he? Because clearly Pittsburgh needs to make a change at quarterback and invest in a futures quarterback. He did, I mean, look, he's like the last guy who's kind of like the, the aging vet and the arm is going. And, you, you know, you saw Peyton Manning survive. You saw two lesser Rivers survived last year. Uh, this is really interesting what's going on with Roethlisberger. Unless you're a Steelers fan, then it's just sort of terrifying. But uh, it's really interesting what's, what's going on with him. In just uh, They don't have the offensive line they really need to have with a guy like Roethlisberger who, uh, I mean, look, he, he can't protect himself uh, mobility-wise. They, they, they sort of exhausted their quick strike stuff. That's the other way you, you counter a bad offensive line. You do a lot of quick strike stuff. They sort of rolled that out last year, and it worked early. And then everyone sort of caught up to it and sort of started teeing off on their receivers, and uh, they sort of had to get away with it. So they're kind of running out of answers. I will say their offensive line played excellent yesterday. I mean, that was their best performance. I, I think you go, could go back to 2019 uh, as far as how that Steelers offensive line played in a game. And, you know, they, they kept them clean. They got a lead. They didn't have to. I, I think he only dropped back like 26 times on the game. I mean, that's, that's a formula for winning. Uh, I will say the one the one positive with Roethlisberger is there is something to be said for just having a quarterback back there who who has sort of seen it all and sort of just knows um, just sort of knows how to to manage a game at this point. Uh, you know, I, I know there were some calls. You know, let's let's trot Mason Rudolph or Dwayne Haskins out there. I don't, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> I don't think that's going to go very well at all. Uh, ben 
at least sort of knows how to, you know, some tricks of the trade to uh, uh, sort of work around his limitations at this point, even if it's, it's going to look ugly some weeks, and that's just the way it's going to be. You might as well let him go down with the ship at this point. You mentioned it's interesting to Steelers fans. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, like, my roof blowing off my house is interesting to me. Yeah. Like, I'm very interested in what happens here. I'm not liking any of it, uh, but, de- yeah, it's definitely. Uh, how am I going to solve this problem? Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. Um, in terms of the Sunday night or last night, what was that more telling of? The, the Bills have, again, I hate this, this cliche, arrive stuff. They were in the AFC Championship game. They're here. But was that more of a statement win from the Bills or more of a worrying loss for the, for the Chiefs? I mean, that defense has been a problem, and it's been, it's been glossed over by how great the offense is, but the, the holes are looking more and more glaring for that defense. So if I, if I have to ask you to pick one, was that more impressive for Buffalo or more worrying for Kansas City? It's a, you know, it's a touch of neither, actually. I really think the Chiefs are going to be fine in the long run. Uh, they'll get Chris Jones back as a point. I can't imagine Frank Clark is going to be as bad as he has been uh, to this point early in the season. I don't know if he's hurt or what's going on with him. He's just been a complete non-factor, and that's a guy they, uh, that a lot of trade uh, 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 stock, uh, a lot of uh, you know, big contract to get him in there to be a difference maker. He's done nothing this year. Uh, I think they'll eventually be fine defensively. They won't be good defensively, but they'll be good enough defensively, and, and they'll, uh, they'll figure it out there. Uh, as far as the Bills go, I mean, yeah, look, there was a white whale type of uh, thing going on here with them beating the Chiefs, and they get it, and they, they, uh, you know, they, they, they tried two very different tacks defensively when they played Mahomes last year and neither one worked and they sort of found a nice mix in this game and and look they did benefit from the fact that Mahomes just had an off night and uh, Travis Kelsey did not play well he got roughed up and uh, you just don't see that very often and I don't think Buffalo necessarily did anything uh, you know it, it's not some new uh, you know brilliant uh, tactic to say let's not let Tyreek Hill scores 70-yard touchdowns, but uh, they, they did it. They played it well. Uh, obviously, Josh Allen made more than enough plays in that game. So that's, it's just a quality victory. And, again, that's not a team that necessarily needs to build confidence or something, but uh, it's just sort of a, a nice moment for them going forward here. Uh, the other team that, I mean, there might be more, but the other team that uh, I guess is topped of mind when, you know, assessing who could hang with the Chargers and Bills and Chiefs in the AFC is probably the Cleveland Browns. They've went toe-to-toe with the Kansas City Chiefs and, of course, the Chargers yesterday. But it seems like something is just missing there. You know, it was previously, you know, an unmistakably elite quarterback. But Baker Mayfield played pretty well yesterday. So what 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 are they missing? Why why have they come up on the short end of a couple big games? Or, uh, you know, the best best performances for them just sort of ahead here for them? I'll be honest, guys. I I really think the Browns are the best team in the AFC, uh, and I, I realize they they lost yesterday and and they lost to the Chiefs earlier this season. I think that's the most complete team in the AFC. The one thing that you'd say is missing, and if this is. Uh, gosh, we'd have to spend like 45 minutes on it to really properly parse it, but uh, Baker Mayfield has to make plays late in games. I mean, that's why they lost to the Chiefs. They had two drives late, didn't come up with any points. Yesterday they, they had two late drives. They went three and out on one. And uh, obviously that, that last one was just, look, having to go 75 yards in 90 seconds with no timeouts, that would be an incredible drive if he pulled it off, but they weren't even close to pulling it off. So uh, it's – 
it's not even. I, I don't even know if, if you really worry about it. You just like to see it. You know he's capable of it. Uh, you just want to see it in practice at some point. And uh, it's a very small sample size, and I don't want to overreact to it. But right now, that's the difference between them being three and two and five and zero. Oh, is uh, Baker Mayfield needs to mount one of these late game drives. And uh, look, at some point, it's going to come up in January, and uh, and we'll see what happens then. But you know, you'd like to you'd like to see it at some point yeah it's 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 kind of telling to me and again like we've we've been heaping praise on the guy so i I mean this this kind of goes without saying but if you just flip the quarterbacks in that game i don't think there's any doubt about who wins it's it's the cleveland browns like if you just just flip the the quarterbacks and give them herbert it feels to me like they take care of business and you know i think i think sometimes we get kind of almost or i do at least get a little hesitant to be critical of a player like mayfield who is you know a top 10 quarterback in the nfl and it's but it might not be quite enough to kind of get them over the hump and i think like you said it's going to be that's what they're going to find out this year and, and potentially next uh one team who has impressed got their quarterback back this year the Dallas Cowboys. I mean, I I always wait for the thing to go wrong with the Cowboys, but this year it's just gone right. I mean, uh, how where are you in in terms of ranking them in the NFC? Well, I mean, they're going to run away with the division. Obviously, I think they are a step behind that sort of class with the you know the Rams, the the Bucks, uh, whoever else you want to put it. I actually don't quite put the cards there, but maybe I'm I'm wrong on that. Uh, I have the Cowboys sort of on that two three tier there. Uh, I think what's going to be interesting going forward. They're they're taking the ball away so much, and I don't know if that defense is quite good enough to sort of bank on that. Like, I don't think this is a a 2015 Broncos or or, or you know 2018 Bears type of defense here. They're much improved, obviously, but I think they're probably closer to league average than sort of top of the league ultimately. And I think at some point those takeaways dry up. Uh, what is nice right now is obviously they're playing great defense. The run game is 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 really uh, dominating at this point. Uh, and that's you know that that's a that's an easy formula for winning week in week out. And Dak Prescott's playing really well, but I mean he only has to throw the ball like twenty twenty five times every week, and that's a great spot to be in. At some point they're going to get in these sort of uh, shootout type games, or they're going to get outscored. Just the way it's going to be. But uh, uh, I mean, look, you get to January, and if you're looking to uh, get multiple takeaways in a game, it usually just doesn't quite happen that way because you're just playing really good opponents at that point. So we'll, we'll see how they evolve going forward. I think they're probably a year away from really being in, in sort of a Super Bowl con- uh, conversation, though. Well, well said and uh, thoroughly enjoyed the chat. Uh, Gary Grambling with Sports Illustrated and host of the Monday Morning Quarterback Podcast. Gary, thanks so much, man. Really appreciate it. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. There he goes. Uh, as I mentioned, Gary Grambling. I don't know about you, Justin. I have, I always have these teams kind of in every sport, and the Cowboys are numero uno for me in terms of, now, I feel this way about teams I care about, of course. We'll leave that to the side for now. But in terms of teams, I'm just a neutral observer for. I am always waiting for the car crash to happen for the Cowboys. Not even that I want it. It just seems like they're just one of the loudest franchises in sports. There's always something going on there. Oh, they definitely are. But it seems like, you know, that it, the car crash being imminent, it doesn't feel like the car crash is imminent. There seems like something is different about Dallas this year. I mean, Dak Prescott is just playing unbelievable, unbelievable football. And when they do challenge him to throw the ball, he puts it on a tee. And when they do, you know, play a little bit deeper coverage, I means Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard have just shown that they can gash pretty much any defense that they've put in front of uh, Dallas so far. So it's, uh, it, you know, it's shaping up to be a very interesting season, but 
like the Browns and the Cowboys and the Chargers being involved, like it seems like there's that next level of elite teams, uh, elite teams rising up and it's shaping up to be, I mentioned mediocrity. That doesn't matter in the postseason because as long as you jam a bunch of good teams in there and they run into each other, it's going to be a lot of fun at the end of the season. Yeah, it's true. And we always talk about wanting to see in all sports, the kind of changing of the guard. And I don't think it's going to be the, the actual, like, you know, they do over at the, the palace in England where it's like, all right, all the old teams are out, all the new teams are in, but it's like, it's almost like they've just like extended the guest list on the party. There's just a few more people. You know what? Let Justin Herbert and the chargers get in. Let those Browns come in. Uh, Justin ton of fun doing the show with you today. Again, as I said, always, always awkward in these meetings where we've spoke tons of times, but never actually met uh, tons of fun doing the show. Love chatting Leafs with you. Uh, this was great. I'd love to do it again. And I, I will say the, the work day goes by so fast when you have two hours of live radio, you just jam all the, uh, you know, the interesting bits in all together. And it's, uh, it goes by in a flash. And, but, but the important thing now, if you're going to be a radio guy, you got to know this is you can't phrase it that way because we all have like <laughs> wives and families and obligations and stuff where you right. say the work day started yesterday at one o'clock when we were grinding over the NFL tape to have all of our wonderful takes today, your workday started when Leafs camp got going. So the workday never stops and never, or never starts and never ends, but it's, it's fun. So that's the, it's the only little, little tidbit I'll give you there is you cannot be saying it's a two hour workday. It, 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 it is a two hour workday, but we can't say it out loud. It masqueraded as work, but really it was like just my my fandom and my uh, my my bank account, I guess, being just <laughs> incredibly frustrated with Mason Crosby, who doesn't learn how to use a slice. As a guy who has a slice on the mm. golf course, you learn that you just line up a little bit to one way and it'll go straight down the middle. Or if you're playing with me, a lot of bit to one way. Wow, I, mean, I can't believe it took us this long to, uh, to fi find ourselves with a golf analogy here. I'm one of the golf guys after all. Oh my goodness. We'll have to dive into that uh, next next time we're back together. I uh, really want to thank everybody who helped us put the, the show together today. Producer extraordinaire, Mark Boffo. Technical director, Derek Brandeo. Of course, all of our wonderful guests as well. We had uh, Luke Fox, Julia McKenzie, and you just heard of Gary Grambling from Sports Illustrated and the Monday morning quarterback. Busy, busy day on the station. Tons of local programming as well. We're gearing up the Leafs regular season. It is here. Finally, this week. I know it doesn't feel like a Monday holiday, all that stuff. It's finally, finally here. Justin, who will be the Leafs starting goalie Opening night. It has to be Jack Campbell. It will be Jack Campbell. Please tell me it'll be Jack Campbell. It will be Jack Campbell. Okay, thank you. Thank you, thank you. That's all I needed to hear. They're going to go back to back. They're going to split it. That is something I'm not looking forward to. I am thrilled. I'm ecstatic for Leafs hockey this year. I am not looking forward to watching a goaltending carousel. That's Justin Cuthbert. I'm Brent Gunning. Thanks so much for listening to Sportsnet today.